Capitalism is the virus, and the police got a real bad case of capitalism, which are just more reasons why this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how have you kept yourself busy the past couple of weeks? I painted my kitchen banana yellow and took my dog to go watch the uh, looted Target. Looted Target or Best oh, sorry, Buy? It was Best Buy. Might have been Target too. That Best Buy is going out of business, right? <laughs> well, I think they. No, no. Might I mean, that a little faster. Is there an Office Depot? An next? Office Depot is uh, okay. out of business. Right, the Office Depot is going out of business. I went in there to get a printer cartridge one day. They had no idea of what I was talking about, and I had to go way up to. Like, that that right. was on a good day. You should have yeah. tried, tried it yesterday. <laughs> so, but the Office Depot's done. The Best Buy got looted. I don't know about the Target. Don't know about the Jewel. That's a good Jewel too. Hmm. Nothing's being looted around here, Alex. Did you notice that nothing's been looted on Devon Avenue? Everything's closed. <laughs> I don't think uh, people want uh, suspect brand name luggage or aluminum cookware <laughs> all that much. <laughs> I think that our neighborhood's <laughs> pretty safe. Today, sure, we've told you here on This Is Hell what's wrong with the world, including racism, misogyny, patriarchy, neoliberalism, even capitalism that all seem to be intertwined into one gigantic mess. But what if I told you there was something that combines all of those problems, that all of those horrors reside together under one big tent, one big umbrella that encompasses every one of them, enabling each to be destructive in their own unique way, contributing to the overall destructiveness that we see happening to the planet and its people daily. You'd freak out, right? It would change the way you view everything from the pandemic to the killing of George Floyd. And if our conversation today has the same effect her writing has had on me, you won't be able to stop thinking about how the real problem is imperialism. In a few minutes, we'll talk to art curator, filmmaker, and theorist of photography and visual culture, Ariella Aisha Azale, author of Potential History, Unlearning Imperialism, Ariella teaches political thought and visual culture at Brown University. You can find out more about Ariella as well as all of her writing at cargocollective.com slash Ariella Azale. You can follow Ariella on Twitter at Aisha Ariella. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, pod, stupid enough to think we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure, which is oddly brief. Uh, this week's hammer cure is water with lemon and olive oil 
I just put that on my cabinets the other day. <laughs> in a 2012 article at SF Gate headline, Tips to Cure That Hangover, writer Melissa Fiorenza admits that there is no cure for hangover. <laughs> However, she quotes Donna Bunt of Greenwich Holistic Health, saying one remedy to help detox the liver is water with fresh squeezed lemon juice and a teaspoon of olive oil. Bunt explains the oil helps pull toxins from the liver. Oh, that's how that works. <laughs> and Exilfix Hammer Cure water with fresh squeezed lemon juice and a teaspoon of olive oil. And that actually sounds like it's good for you and it might work, so I'm going to try that next time I have a hangover. I don't usually get one, but next time I do, I promise. This is hell. Actually, this is not the media. This is hell. Wow. Did I underestimate how upset, uh, the amount of pent-up anger, how unhappy people would be after the announcement of the plans for a return of the National Hockey League. Yeah, the 24-team playoff format is typically stupid of professional hockey, but I had no idea it would lead to day after day of peaceful protests followed by night after night of vandalism and police violence. I know this had to be about hockey because the only sporting goods store they showed being looted in downtown Chicago Saturday night was a store where they were taking Chicago Blackhawk hockey jerseys. I didn't see any other Chicago sports team jersey being stolen anywhere, so clearly we need to look to the NHL and why those crackers did something so stupid, especially during a global pandemic. Now that I've broken the ice with the dumb hockey joke and just now and even dumber hockey joke. Hat tip to all the looters here in Chicago Saturday night for taking the advice of so many condescending non-city dwellers and media types who always seem to ask when uprisings like this happen. Why do those people destroy their neighborhoods, loot from the very stores they depend on so much? Now, I can only assume the logic was, during an uprising, it's not that easy to catch an Uber to a nice neighborhood or nearby suburb and loot there where the pickings are good. I mean, why vent your anger against your neighbor or their business, even if that business is owned by someone who is no longer your neighbor, profiting off the community enough so they could leave their loyal customers behind for a much better, safer place to live? So why not jump on the local commuter train and go to the suburbs where the money is gone and loot those stores, burn those cars, right? Because it makes absolutely no sense to destroy your own community. So clearly, if you are going to loot, go to the rich neighborhoods where they got the good stuff, at least according to rich people. And that's exactly what happened in Chicago Saturday night. After years of elites not understanding why the looters loot their own communities, which are far less protected by police, they took their betters' advice and went to the wealthiest part of Chicago with the most posh shops where the richest people live, where many in the media live, where the media is headquartered. They went to them to make certain this time the protesters would not be ignored because the media only cares about what happens to themselves, what inconveniences their lives, what makes them uncomfortable, what makes their living challenging, all under the arrogant assumption that their problems are everyone's problems without considering the degree to which... They lead very privileged lives and are far from being the every man or every woman. Believe it or not, members of the media, you are not socially or financially an accurate representation of the majority of the public. The local TV news media here in Chicago is terrified. Huge corporate chains with hundreds of millions of dollars in value with employees who are underpaid, who are being robbed. Chains where the media spends their money every day. They were shocked, shocked, I tell you, to see stores they frequent 
to be the subject of the public's ire. It's as if, despite daily reporting of all the racial and class disparities, the mounting evidence of inequality, the media was somehow totally clueless as to the unsustainability of a system that depends upon the subjugation of the people in order to fulfill the demands of the 1%, whose profits are prioritized even over the very lives of everyone, as we saw and are still seeing with the coronavirus, where profits are prioritized before people. Of course, the president and the Nazis at Fox News will be saying all the violence is left-wing extremists' fault without reporting on mobs of white supremacists harassing blacks on the streets of Philadelphia and starting fires in Minneapolis instigated by the president of the United States. Trump has even ordered his jackbooted armed thugs who successfully shut down the state of Michigan's government to go to Minnesota to show their support for the police, the police who murdered George Floyd. And you think there won't be armed Nazis at polling stations this November, intimidating those who did not look who do not look like them in an attempt to block citizens from voting in what nobody will be able to call a democracy anymore. That is, if there is an election, with Republicans trying to delegitimize voting by mail as something that is unprecedented. It's not because it's been around for 150 years, or rarely done and only under specific circumstances. It's not as one in four voters voted by mail in 2016. And even suggesting shutting down the post office altogether to make certain voters cannot vote by mail, and preparing to question whatever the vote totals are as they trickle in day after day this November because voters refuse to risk their lives by going to the actual polls. Yeah, all things are pointing to an armed fascist coup sometime around Thanksgiving. So that'll be a nice conversation to have at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Count on it, and the police won't do a damn thing because more than likely they're on the armed thug side. For years, there have been reports of cops working with white supremacists, including at the deadly protests in Charlottesville. This is how the state reacts to social uprising, an uprising that would not have occurred if other avenues for change had been accessible to those who are in the streets. And that lack of a functioning state that is responsive to the needs of the people is always the reason revolutions, uprisings happen. The state's relationship with society was perfectly on display Saturday night when the state of Minnesota had a press conference outlining their response and the two speakers that they called upon were the leader of the National Guard and the head of the Department of Corrections. So the state's military general and its prison warden. The way this system responds to the public, being upset about their treatment by the state, is call in the armed prison guards and military to back up the local police because that is the only way the system can survive at the long end of the barrel of lots of guns. Policing doesn't work. It is not the best way to serve and protect the public. And if you need an armed force to impose your system upon the public, then clearly the public ain't too crazy about your freaking system. When you need to increasingly militarize those cops until they look nearly identical to the National Guard troops who are supporting them, you know the public's relationship with the police has gone from engaging with the friendly beat cop on the corner, who everybody knew in the neighborhood by their name, to being held hostage by an occupying military force that is an immediate threat to the health, safety, and welfare of an entire imprisoned community. 
On top of that, cutting all funding to the most vulnerable, to the most impoverished, eliminates social workers, but not social services. Problem is, the new social services are done by social workers that are the only government workers the state can get funding to maintain, even expand. And that's the police who are now the social workers dispensing social services. Children are no longer hanging out with trained social workers at community centers, but armed cops at midnight basketball games. And what is no longer a process about helping people discover who they are and their role in the community, but one of controlling the underclass, keeping an eye on them, making them targets of constant surveillance from school to underpaid employment opportunities to prison. Despite that institutional hell, the media is offended by looting. Looting? Freaking looting? That's what offends you? Local CBS News even tried to get Don Flesh, owner of Central Camera, a long-time downtown shop that has been in his family for three generations, which was looted and burned to the ground Saturday night. They wanted him to spew his anger at protesters who the media was working hard to delegitimize while ignoring the issue of police violence. The reporter so wanted Flesh to be mad about losing his business, but Flesh said he could rebuild and it will be better. The reporter angrily pushed back. Why aren't you angry? Flesh said what angered him wasn't the loss of his livelihood, his business, his money, his inventory, his stock, potential future profits. He was upset about the killing of George Floyd. The reporter was dumbfounded. How can you not be angry about your store burning down? The reporter was also struck by Flesh smiling, keeping it all in perspective because the media was not. You could hear it in the reporter's voice. Why can't these protesters protest peacefully? You could almost hear the implied activists like Martin Luther King, which the media loves to use while trolling black, black activists, employing it like a cudgel. Actually, those protesting police violence can protest peacefully. It's just that when they do, the industry within which they work will shun them, cutting them off from access to the livelihood, a livelihood they invested their entire lives. It will just be taken away. Colin Kaepernick peacefully protested, and what did it get him? They took from him the thing he loved to do the most with his life. Consider what TV news will show and what it will not, and why. You are definitely not going to see war footage of U.S. troops or automated drones killing people. The state wised up to that during the Vietnam War. If the public knew what was happening in wars, fought in their names, they would never support the killings. But TV's news sure as hell will show you vandalism, which they consider violence as doing harm to property, is apparently more offensive than the violence done to human bodies. Yes, they'll show George Floyd's murder over and over again, but only George Floyd's murder or the death of the next black person singled out an individual whose toxicology report will be scrutinized and scrutinized until law enforcement and media is absolved of any responsibility in the killing. If you did a toxicology report on me right now, I can tell you if I was killed by a cop, it would be my fault. We saw yesterday what happens on Sunday. What happens when protesters take the advice of the media and their critics and don't take out their anger on their own communities and local businesses and instead go to the wealthier areas like Chicago's Loop and target it for their vengeance? The state calls in the military and along with law enforcement, they cordon off the wealthy area, closing off everything from Division Street on the north side 
to 26th in the south, Halstead to the west, and the lake to the east, an area of some 15 square miles of the most fabulously wealthy residents and the biggest corporate chains and offices leaving the neighborhoods to go unprotected and the looting shifted to places away from rich snowflakes who cry more over water tower place shopping mall being looted than a person being murdered by a cop. That looting will end, but police disproportionately killing black people will not. Now with white supremacists coming off victories in Michigan and in cities around the country being on the side of the police, it may actually get worse. There is hope from activists in Minneapolis that this will finally give them a seat at the table when considering the future and potential abolition of policing. I hope it will too, and we will continue to do our part by having guests on our show who are willing to analyze and criticize policing. Right now, you can find approximately 80 interviews we've done on the subject at thisishell.com. That's only the conversations we've had since 2015. That's more than one a month for over six years. And again, you can hear all of them at our site, thisishell.com, absolutely free. But you got to ask yourself, what's the likelihood that we will finally have a system that does not need to be enforced on those it harms the most in order to succeed? A system whose success is dependent upon the suffering of others. Worse, what are the chances that we are careening headlong to full-blown fascism at the polling places on the streets, armed to the teeth, white supremacists patrolling people of color. After all we've been telling you since 1996, this is hell. But I'm sure everything will be fine once we restart the hockey season. Coming up, it's all imperialism's fault. We'll have rotten history and tell you the rest of this week's guests. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio, so clearly... Gnomes gone insane. This is hell. We have had guests on our show explain how the overarching problem affecting all of us is racism. Others have said it is sexism, still others misogyny, even patriarchy. We've had critics say the big issue is really neoliberalism, and analysts who say it goes beyond neoliberalism and it's really capitalism. Here to explain how we may view the world when we see our biggest challenge to be imperialism we are incredibly honored to have as a guest this week art curator, filmmaker, and theorist of photography and visual art and culture, Ariella Aisha Azale, author of Potential History, Unlearning Imperialism. You can follow Ariella on Twitter at Aisha Ariella. Welcome to This Is How, Ariella. Hi. Am I doing pretty well in that R? Yes, great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. So first of all, I'm going to ask you a few basic questions, uh, just about you know, really basic things. But then I want to see how we can apply to what's happening today. How do what do you mean by imperialism? Because every time I've talked to somebody who said we're going to have somebody on who is going to be uh, talking about the problems of imperialism, every person has said to me, well, how does imperialism differentiate from capitalism. So how do you define imperialism and how does it include more than just capitalism? So I think that the question is not how does it include more? And I heard your list, uh, you know, of people that you invited uh, to speak either about racial capitalism, either about neoliberalism, etc. I don't think that they are, you know, exclusive. I think that these are entangled, you know, uh, formations 
And uh, maybe each of us is trying, you know, to uh, articulate it from a, a different angle. But we are speaking about the same, you know, disaster that is taking place for 500 years. And if you had your show, you know, already uh, uh, in place in 1492, I'm sure that you will keep doing the same work. Uh, so we are speaking about a system that didn't start yesterday. And... Um, we can give it different names. The question is, what do we want to emphasize? And I think that what I'm trying to emphasize with potential history that has, you know, a subtitle, which is unlearning imperialism, is that, you know, one of the uh, um, uh, major uh, imperial condition is to make all of us believe that it is irreversible, that whatever was acquired by or through imperial violence is irreversible. And unlearning imperialism is saying that not only it is reversible, it is reversible 500 years, you know, backward. Uh, so, and not being afraid of words like backward, not being afraid of, you know, uh, thinking that we can really reverse and claim repair and reparations for the damage that was uh, uh, um produced, generated, exercised in the last 500 years. So it is racial capitalism, it is imperialism, it is colonialism, it is all this entangled together into formations that are uh, against people and value uh, property, as you said a few minutes ago. So uh, when we think of our natural state of affairs being imperialism, being the subjugation of others for our benefit, how does that change the way we view nature, <laughs> We uh, view the natural state of affairs? How does it change the way we view the world when we believe that the natural state of affairs is the only way that you can benefit is from the subjugation of others? So, you know, it becomes natural because it is being normalized. How is it being normalized? So I'm trying to address it, you know, from two, uh, uh, two under my two hats. One of them is, you know, a political theorist. The other one, way, the other one is engaging with media. And I'm trying to understand, or with media or with scholarship uh, in general, I'm trying to understand how, you know, this violence is being normalized through different practices, that we engage with as if they were benign practices. And it brings us again to this separation that is crucial to the imperial project, is crucial to racial capitalism between objects and people. You know, objects were uh, uh, looted from people uh, in the last 500 years, you know, on a daily basis. They are being looted from people on a daily basis. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, they are being treated uh, as precious objects that deserve uh, care. Uh, we see it again with the uh, current discussion about looting. Uh, and on the other hand, we had people that were, you know, uh, not only subjugated, they were enslaved, we are speaking about genocides, we are speaking about uh, 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 depriving them of the objects that constituted their worlds. So when we speak about looting and property, we are already in a regime that transform everything into a commodity, into a property that should be protected by the police. So unlearning imperialism is uh, start by unlearning the separation between people and objects uh, that can create that the life of people, of uh, people who belong to certain groups is uh, uh, disposable, can be taken, uh, while objects should be protected. 
There was so much. I, this is why I enjoyed reading your books so much. To see the imperial as benign is one of its goals, and you were just talking about the commodifying of property, so it can be enforced by the police. So that gets us to what's been happening over the last week. How do you see imperialism manifesting itself in the killing of George Floyd and the responses by the state and its subsequent protests? So, you know, here I can just, you know, repeat people who are doing, you know, this job uh, in the context of the U.S. on a daily basis. I mean, Black Lives Matters, prior to that, you know, uh, all the other uh, uh, black movements. So I don't want, you know, to... uh, to present myself as if I have something special to say about this, because, you know, these, these things are being said. I would like maybe to, to uh, address your question from a different perspective. I moved to the U.S. Uh, um, seven years ago, and I'm coming from what is, you know, known as Israel, but is actually destroyed Palestine. And when I moved here, you know, I knew uh, little about the U.S., but I knew much about Palestine, and I was struck by the similarities, you know, of what I see here and what I saw there. And, you know, while uh, 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 we uh, watched uh, we are, uh, what we uh, uh, saw, uh, uh, the lynching of George Floyd, there was also the lynching of a Palestinian boy in East Jerusalem by the Israeli military. And I think that this is not a coincidence. This is the outcome of what I call regime disaster. And Israel is a regime-made disaster, and the U.S. is a regime-made disaster. And regime-made disaster is what make you know imperialism uh, be conceived as uh, uh, irreversible because it is part of the regime. So you see lynching that is not uh, done by you know individual; it is done uh, with the support of the state. It is part of the way that the regime uh, uh, perpetuates itself. Uh, and when I'm thinking about, you know, uh, uh, what we saw in the last couple of days, which, again, uh, unfortunately, we saw it so many times, and not only in the US, we saw it in Palestine, and we see it in other places. Uh, so, you know, we have this video of the lynching that uh, was taken by uh, Daniela Fraser, and uh, uh, she did a very courageous, you know, thing, because in the US, sometimes those who are filming uh, 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 lynching by the police are being arrested and are being harassed. And she's being harassed uh, now for what she did. And she posted it. And without her taking this photo, uh, this uh, video and without her posting it, maybe uh, the hundreds of thousands of people across the U.S. and across the world uh, will not be out there to protest against uh, police brutality and to honor George Floyd's uh, life. And I think that what we have here when we think about, you know, this video is that she took the right decision at the beginning because otherwise, you know, the police will do away with this lynching. Uh, but at a certain moment when this uh, video uh, was posted uh, enough times to take people to the street under the pandemic, under the lockdown, that take advantage of people being locked down uh, uh, to avoid uh, uh, major protest. So when uh, uh, hundreds of thousands were already in the street, this was the moment to stop uh, uh, circulating the video. And I think that what we see is how the media uh, continue to reproduce those images 
that should not have been, uh, you know, uh, 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 happened to begin with, not the video, but the lynching. So there is something about uh, circulating those images that we have to understand as something that can, uh, uh, at one and the same time, serve the perpetuation of the same violence and uh, uh, attempt to stop it. And it doesn't have this kind of, you know, universal uh, uh, guideline that everything should be seen like, you know, imperialism tried to indoctrinate people that there are some, you know, uh, universal uh, uh, values or what they what is being called ethical values of how to treat images. And I think that what we saw in the last week is the moment when those uh, images of the lynching should be retreated from circulation because people in the streets are already the placeholder of the evidence which means that the evidence cannot can not be erased by the police and this is the moment maybe to think about how the commodification of the lynching through the video uh, that was uh, the right thing to do when uh, Daniela Frazers took the uh, this footage should st should stop in order not to uh, uh, perpetuate uh, the violence toward uh, George Floyd being seen that way only that way uh, through the media. And you write of the camera shutter, which is some of the most fascinating writing in your book. The shutter is a synecdoche for the operation of the imperial enterprise altogether, on which the invention of photography as well as other technological media was modeled. A synecdoche is a figure of speech in which a word or phrase that refers to a part of something is substitute to stand in for a whole or vice versa, for example. The phrase all hands on deck or Chicago won the game as if the entire city won and not only one of the city's many teams. So how is photography modeled on the Imperial Enterprise? And I know that you just touched on that, but can it also be turned against imperialism? Because it seems like so many of the projects of imperialism, like its attempts to obfuscate its actual existence, can actually be used to undermine imperialism. So, yes, the answer is yes, photography is being used to undermine uh, imperialism, but only if we consider photography, you know, again, not for the uh, objects that it produces, not for the photographs themselves, but uh, the way that, you know, the only way that we can think about photography undermining imperialism or racial capitalism is when we see it being used as part of a movement as part of, uh, uh, you know, coalitions of people who are struggling and uh, whose commitment is not to photography, but, for example, to Black Lives Matter, uh, like, for example, to uh, toward abolition, like, for example, for the uh, uh, reappearance of Palestine where Israel is. So uh, while I think that photography uh, was invented not in the 19th century as, you know, scholars are being uh, trained to believe when the camera was invented, but it was invented together with other imperial technologies at the end of the 15th centuries. And when I'm speaking about imperial technologies, I'm speaking about this power that is predicated on imperial rights to separate communities, to tear them apart, to uh, expropriate them from what they have, to subjugate them, to enslave them, to massacre them, etc., etc. So this is the moment when photography was invented as part of imperial technologies. The device with which you take uh, uh, photographs was invented in the 19th century. But we cannot allow ourselves under the imperial condition to continue to talk about histories of devices, histories of disciplines like, you know, photography. We have to understand how photography was implicated 
from the very beginning with the imperial project. Because, you know, the world was already organized in a way that it was, uh, 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 that the racial divisions were already in place. The world was, uh, was already organized in a way that, you know, plantations, camps, all these uh, uh, spatial formations were in place in a way that the camera could come with this ethos of neutrality just to record or to document, while the camera uh, uh, was uh, able uh, to uh, enter all those places only because military uh, uh, forces and policing forces already organized the terrain in a way that uh, uh, operators of uh, photography, operators of camera could go in different places and take, you know, uh, uh, and accumulate what I call photographic wealth from all these colonies that uh, were already in place. And this photographic play, uh, wealth means that images were expropriated from uh, people. Um, and I forgot what I wanted to say at the beginning. I lost my thread. I was answering your question. Uh, well, it, it, let's, I just want to move on to your next point. You, you were on to something already. Uh, you, uh, <laughs> is imperialism then seen as both benign, natural, and inevitable because of photography and its record. Is photography the propaganda of imperialism? Again, like I, I tried to answer earlier, yes and no at the same time. Photography is being mobilized all the time and it participate in the naturalization of imperial technologies or imperial formations of violence. But as photography is being practiced by, you know, as many people as are implicated in it, not only as photographers, as spectators, as the photographed persons, etc. So, of course, what we have, you know, uh, articulated through photography is people different aspirations. So, uh, while photography is being used as propaganda, it is also constantly being used against, uh, uh, the, let's say, the principle of imperial technologies, which is toward abolition or toward uh, um, return reparations, repair, and other principles that uh, uh, seek to replace the principles of uh, imperialism and racial capitalism, which are principles of growth, irreversibility, um, and unavoidability. You write that uh, this is what unlearning imperialism looks like. It means unlearning the disassoci dissociation that unleashed an unstoppable movement of forced migration of objects and people to different circuits and the destruction of the worlds of which they were part. As far as the objects are going, you are talking about the collections in museums and universities. These worlds were transformed into a construction site where everything could be made into raw material. Dissociation is the mental process of disconnecting from one's thoughts, feelings, memories, or sense of identity. Is unlearning raising awareness of how imperialism operates around us at all times, or is unlearning more than that? Is it also about our own complicity, our own compliance with imperialism? Uh, you know, I think that the word of oh, the idea of uh, raising awareness is, you know, we know how corrupted it became. So I prefer not to think about unlearning imperialism as part of it. When I'm thinking about unlearning imperialism, I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, uh, in a way, we all were born into this world. We were born into different positions. We were born uh, uh, belonging or being unbelonged 
to different groups. But we were born into a world where already from uh, the very beginning, we are being trained to operate its technologies. And uh, people are being exposed differently to those technologies. People have different access to those technologies, but we operate those technologies. We are being recognized or we recognize ourselves through these technologies. And here I would like to give, you know, uh, uh, my personal example. I was born, you know, after 48, which means Palestine was gone, or at least this was the ideology that Palestine is gone. And I was born to believe that I am an Israeli citizen. And uh, this is a technology. Citizenship is a technology because this technology was invented in order to keep Palestinians outside of Palestine and in order for people uh, outside of Israel would also believe that Palestine is gone and now we have Israel. So uh, being born to identify yourself in imperial uh, technology of citizenship, for example, or growing up to become a scholar, uh, to be a professional in photography, in architecture, in medicine, etc. It comes with uh, 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 so much of knowledge or savoir-faire or knowing how of imperial technologies that you are being required to learn them or you already learn them uh, under different, you know, uh, uh, capacities. And once you realize that your commitment is not to the discipline, is not to the profession, but your commitment is, for example, to uh, uh, abolition, for example, for the return of Palestinians, there is a kind of conflict between uh, what is expected from you as uh, a scholar, as an artist, as a curator, whatever, as a citizen, and uh, uh, between where you believe your commitment should be. Because all those professions, all those disciplines, the academia, museum, archives, all these institutions uh, were built in order to displace our commitment to the right thing, uh, uh, to uh, replace it with a commitment to the history of those separated uh, disciplines. Uh, so unlearning imperialism is unlearning what you uh, were trained to believe that is the right thing. And all of us have to do it, and no one can do it for anyone else. Uh, we all have to go through this process, and we have to invest in it, you know, different energies, different uh, protocols. It doesn't mean that everyone uh, uh, has to do it uh, in the same way, or as everyone has to unlearn the same things. And there are uh, cer certain things that once you learn them, you know, you have already unlearned many others that you don't have to proactively unlearn. Uh, so I think that unlearning imperialism is something that no one can escape, uh, and it can be a lifelong process because until the world will be uh, decolonized, we will all have to continue to unlearn. The one thing that we seem to be more and more infatuated with, uh, fetishizing, obsessed with, is this idea of what our ancestry is. You see all these commercials on TV for 23andMe and people trying to determine what their identity is. I guess my national identity would be I'm half Irish, a quarter Swiss, and a quarter Roma. But that doesn't mean anything to me. You point out about your own identity. I don't even have uh, your parents' immaterial belongings like 
Ladino, the language Jews spoke in Spain and passed down to their children for generations. And you talk about your refusal to be an Israeli, to think like an Israeli, to identify myself as, as an Israeli, or to be recognized as an Israeli. I refuse partly because being an Israeli means being entitled to stolen lands and the property of others. My refusal doesn't try to dream up a new category. It is rather a refusal to accept that our predecessors' dreams, not necessarily our parents, but their parents or grandparents, can no longer be ours, as if the three tenses of past, present, and future that separate us and fix us in different eras were not invented exactly for this purpose. Are we stuck in the dreams of the past, and can we free ourselves from dreams that are now, for us, obsolete? Uh, You know, this is a very complex issue because, you know, on the one hand, we should not be committed to uh, a pact of violence uh, initiated and fulfilled by our ancestors. But on the other hand, we have not to forget that among our ancestors, there were people who always uh, refused and rejected those pacts. So the question is not about, uh, you know, past, if you are stuck in the uh, past, and uh, uh, what about our dreams for the future? The question is how to unlearn the past. The past is an imperial invention. Uh, And once you understand that the past is an imperial invention that serves different imperial or racial capitalist interests, you understand that you have to think really in this kind of unit of time and space of 500 years. And I'm saying also not only unit of time, but also unit of space, because I think that, you know, you cannot think Palestine without the U.S., you cannot think the U.S. without Palestine and other places, and Algeria, for example, because, you know, all these places are... You've seen them, you know, how uh, indigenous indigenous lands were stolen, how people were expropriated from the worlds that they had, how their worlds were transformed into property, how these people were uh, forced to unbelong to their communities and to believe that if they still have some ties to their communities, those belong to a kind of uh, uh, nostalgic past that they are just dreaming about them. So I think that unlearning imperialism is really unlearning this separation of tenses and understanding that nothing of the struggle that people are you know, pursuing today uh, are new. They are all there from the very moment when people started to be exposed to imperial violence. We must remind this to ourselves in order to, uh, first of all, to conceive those struggles in their long durée and not to think about them, you know, as novelty. Uh, uh, Because you don't, uh, there is nothing new to invent in opposing to uh, police brutality. So we must assume that people who were exposed to police brutality earlier resisted also. So the question is how we unlearn uh, imperialism, we unlearn this uh, separation between the tenses in order to understand that imperialism is uh, 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 a formation that is against, let's say, the common sense, the common sense of uh, uh, what is violence, because imperialism tried to indoctrinate and to materialize its uh, doctrines in institutions, in benign institutions, in the academia, in museums, in archives, to naturalize that not violence is not violence. There is violence when it is uh, directed against certain people and certain objects. It is not violence when it is uh, uh, directed or t- when it targets 
are certain other groups or certain other type of objects. So uh, when I'm speaking about uh, unlearning imperialism is to recover the common sense of violence, which means to recognize violence where it is, not under the protocols of imperialism that are being spread and embedded uh, uh, in all the technologies that uh, every day we are being required to operate. On Potential History, you write that colonization of the people is not just another tale about 18th century nationalism. Setting an example of worldly sovereignty from 1947 Palestine, right after the UN partition resolution was announced, a violent coup was unleashed by Jewish military and political leaders who ignored the local population and its mode of engagement with the existing world and engineered a new body politic by removing Palestinians and moving migrant Jews to populate the emptied places. This violence was part of a larger economy of violence that forced all the Jewish inhabitants of Palestine to comply with the new order and identify themselves with the new entity as Israeli at the expense of their existing cultural, communal, and spiritual engagements. The coup leaders were met with civil resistance mounted all over Palestine by both Arabs and Jews. How important is that erasing of anti-imperial movements and their history for imperialism's survival? Is it dependent upon the erasing of that history so it can be sustainable? Yeah, you know, just this morning, uh, someone circulated on social media uh, uh, a stamp from 34 Antifa uh, uh, for Jewish Arab Workers Solidarity. Um, So... um, You know, what I'm trying to do with Palestine and speaking about worldly sovereignty that was there until 47 is not to idealize, you know, what happened in Palestine, because, you know, Palestine was already under uh, British mandate. And this is not something to idealize. But nonetheless, uh, because there was a kind of uh, 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 there was not yet what we know as imperial sovereignty in the U.S., in France and in all the other uh, uh, imperial places, uh, there was room for something that I call and I insist on calling against, you know, uh, the way that political theory describes us what is sovereignty. I insist on calling worldly sovereignty. And what do I see by worldly sovereignty? I see, you know, uh, uh, hundreds of local communities that are trying to protect their life. So while we look today, you know, uh, at Israel-Palestine, people speak, you know, uh, uh, people describe it as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is an aberration. Because it always it creates first of all this kind of symmetry, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is not about conflict. This is about you know uh, uh, stolen lands. This is about destruction of worlds. This is about imposing imperial sovereignty on a place where the body politic was composed of mainly Arab population and uh, a minority of Jews. So what I'm trying to do in this work. Uh, to which I suggest I offer this term of worldly sovereignty, is not to look at Palestine prior to 48, prior to the declaration of the state of Israel, not to look at it from this perspective of today as if there are two sides. So what I'm trying to do, and this is the, you know, the practice of potential history, is to reconstruct something that is lost uh, uh, under the uh, doctrine of uh, uh, nationalism under the the imperial doctrines, something that is lost, which is, uh, uh, it was not obvious that the Jews will win the war. It was not obvious that the Jews, you know, uh, 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 a minority among the Jews will impose its violent idea of statehood on uh, uh, Jews who live there and on Jews that they forced to migrate either from the camps in Europe 
were survivors of World War II were, and they convinced them that Zionism should be their agenda. Or later on from Arab countries uh, in North Africa, that they actually uh, uh, unleashed their forced migration from those countries in order to create the side of the Jews in opposition to the Palestinian side. So what I'm trying to do with worldly sovereignty is, first of all, reject the idea of sovereignty as a top-down uh, 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 formation, as a formation of state apparatuses, and trying to understand sovereignty as the way that people are caring for their world. And what I see, what I reconstruct in relation to Palestine 47, is that the day after the UN uh, uh, announced his uh, partition resolution, uh, Jews and Arabs in hundreds of communities are getting together to achieve, you know, local agreements, how they will protect their life. So again, when you read these agreements, they're not all fantastic. Some of them, you know, I wish would not be written in this language, but this is what we have. But nonetheless, we cannot drop it. We cannot dump it because this is a moment before Palestine also was introduced into the normalization of stolen land becoming the land of others. Uh, because, you know, when we, you think about Palestine, uh, just let me uh, quote or recall uh, Edward Said, how he described that a group of uh, 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 few Jewish European went to see other Europeans, he speaks about the British government, that gave them a land that didn't belong to them, which is Palestine, right? The British uh, uh, held the mandate that was given to them, like, you know, Congo was given to uh, 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 Leopold II. Like many lands were given to different people, given or they took them. So the uh, British gave uh, this uh, uh, group of Jews that later became statemen, uh, kind of respectable statemen. Uh, they gave them a land that didn't belong to them, which is Palestine. So the question is how you unlearn all this, how you unlearn the uh, uh, unity, the unification, the homogeneity of the Jews in '47. And you understand how this homogeneity was created, was manufactured. Uh, uh, and then how you learn that this kind of Israeli-Palestinian conflict didn't start in the 19th century. It was the outcome of violence of uh, 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 a small uh, uh, fraction among the Zionist uh, movement that imposed it on the rest of the Jews as the only way, as the irreversible path the Jews have to take in order to protect them. So there is a lot to unlearn. A lot, a lot to unlearn. <laughs> and, and you point out, your writing uh, pays special attention to the division of roles in the theater of imperial political regimes and to the particular figure of the perpetrator that they cultivate. The perpetrator is not conceived here as an aggrandized persona, but rather as an ordinary man or woman, a citizen perpetrator whose actions seem ordinary to herself or himself. Citizens are often born into the position of the perpetrator by the mere fact of being born citizens or privileged members of a differential body politic. They take part in or acquiesce to crimes they have learned to see as proper law enforcement or part of missions accomplished in their fields of expertise. So can imperial power happen without the citizen perpetrator? And if we are anti-imperialist, can't we just simply extract ourselves from being citizen perpetrators? So, you know, there are different type of violence, I think, in the history, uh, in history. And uh, what make uh, imperial violence of the last 500 years uh, uh, slightly different 
because, you know, we cannot say that there was no massacres before. We cannot say that there was no uh, slavery before. We cannot say that there was no genocide. And we, I mean, the violence uh, was there in different places under different formations. What made uh, uh, imperial violence, I think, uh, different than uh, 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 discrete campaigns of violence, that it became uh, uh, normalized in the language. It became normalized in institutions that we all, and I'm speaking about we all because I want to emphasize that once we enter museums, we enter archives, we enter libraries, even if we have different agenda, the act of entering those institutions is already operating those technologies of violence that became benign. So what uh, makes imperialism uh, slightly different from other formations of violence is the way that it is being normalized uh, through uh, 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 people who do not recognize themselves as perpetrators. And the question, because, you know, uh, uh, the perpetrators are willing immediately to uh, 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 harass, oppress, uh, 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 exercise violence against others. They have a certain visibility, we recognize them. The question is how you make, you know, uh, millions of citizens understand how much they are being implicated as, as perpetrators while they look at themselves in the mirror and they don't understand why. Because they are not holding any, uh, any uh, um, they are not exercising direct violence and they are doing their job. And doing their job under imperialism is already being uh, 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 a perpetrator. So, um, so I think that this type of uh, violence, imperial violence, imperial formation of violence could not exist in the same way without the participation of citizens in their perpetuation. This is why when I'm speaking about, you know, regime a disaster, is in order to make clear that the violence that we see doesn't come from the outside, it's not secondary, it's not uh, uh, incidental, it is constitutive of the regime. Uh, and if it is constitutive of the regime, the citizens are the product of the regimes, we have to unlearn our citizenship. Uh, we have to unlearn this, this particular type of citizenship, imperial citizenship, as the only type of citizenship. And this is why going back to Palestine prior to 47, again, without idealizing it, there, were, there was a practice of co-citizenship. People cared for their shared world. They could belong to different communities. They could have different beliefs, different habits, different uh, uh, practices. But they cared for the shared world because this was their world. There was not yet, you know, the police or the military or the state that the Jews today, you know, uh, uh, in their imagination, the Jews in Israel, the Israeli Jews in their uh, 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 imagination think that the police will come and solve the problems. So when we are speaking of the police or the military, any problem. So everything becomes a problem for which there are solutions. When you look at worldly sovereignty, you see people caring for their worlds. And this is what I'm trying, you know, uh, to think about as co-citizenship, as a shared care for the world, which should be based today 
on uh, what I call negative rights, the right not to be a perpetrator. Because if people are being born into perpetrators, they cannot say, but I was not here when this violence took place. Why do I have to feel implicated? And this is what we hear in relation to the case of uh, for reparations here. This is what you hear from Israeli Jews in uh, Israel. They don't understand why their citizenship should be questioned. They were born citizens. So I think that uh, uh, understanding that this type of citizenship, uh, while you uh, inhabit this position, you are actually being used as uh, most of the time light uh, weapon, other times as uh, not very light weapon uh, against others with whom you are governed. So, um, yeah, imperial citizenship is something that we have to unlearn, and it involves, you know, uh, 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 the transformation of indigenous land into uh, 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 that are being today uh, represented and imagined as uh, 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 the property of nation states should be uh, uh, open up for uh, uh, the uh, reclamation by indigenous populations. And uh, reparations should not be given. Reparations should be part of the practice of uh, uh, transformation, of uh, uh, the formations of power that decide upon reparations. Uh, in other words, uh, all these things should be part of uh, uh, repair of the world. We have been speaking with our curator, filmmaker, and theorist of photography and visual culture, Ariella Aisha Azale, author of Potential History, Unlearning Imperialism. You can find more of Ariella's writing at cargocollective.com slash Ariella Azale. And you can follow her on Twitter at Aisha Ariella. One last question for you, Ariella, and that question is what we do with all of our guests at their final, for our final question, which is what we call the question... From hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You write that political devices such as self-determination, occupation, state lands, partition, repatriation, independence, treaty, peace agreement, human rights, sovereignty, these are all words used to render violence into acceptable political landscapes on a global scale. You even view the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in such a discourse. Rights are abstracted from centuries of imperial injustice and articulated in self-contained verbal statements as if they were ready-made units applicable anywhere and anytime, regardless of the material conditions of violence and inequality under which they should be introduced and exercised in no matter to whom they are addressed. What would you say to someone who argues that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and all of the terms that you see as creating a landscape for a global scale of violence like self-determination, occupation, state lands, and so forth, what would you say to those who say these are all unintended consequences? Their, their hearts were in the right place, and all they were trying to do was expand rights for everyone. <laughs> uh, if we had more time, I would follow up my answer with a question to you. Why do you hate uh, asking this question? But let me first answer. First of all, uh, that's, that's an a absolute correct response, right? <laughs> Go ahead, Ariel. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, what, I would, uh, what I would say to this person is that why do we have to accept a manufactured set of rights that was invented as part of campaign of violence, for example, in 48? Why do we have to accept this single set of rights 
as uh, 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 the right set of rights for uh, billions of people living around the world, that their world were destroyed, and while their worlds were destroyed, this different system of rights that they have there were all already uh, were also destroyed. So what I would say is that rather than relying on this imperial uh, manufacture of rights, we have to restore and recover endless system of rights that were across the world uh, as part of the way the different communities uh, uh, continued to care for their world. And this doesn't mean that we idealize one system over the other. This doesn't mean that we will single out one in order to force it on uh, the rest of the world. The idea is how to abolish the single system of rights that was constitutive of the imposition of imperial violence and to let other formations that were already there, we don't have to invent, we have to recover, to repair, to restore, how to let those other formations the second opportunity to organize themselves, to imagine themselves differently without the imperial violence that is required in order to enforce these imperial rights. So this would be my, my answer. If we still have time, I would like to hear you answer. Why do you hate to ask this question? <laughs> I, uh, I don't know why. I think I'm just a masochist. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to work it out with my therapist right now. Ariella, thank you so much for being on our show. This is really a fascinating conversation, and it could go on for hours more. There's so much more in this book. This really is some of the very best writing I've read this year. Thank you so much for having the opportunity to interview you. This really has been a very enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. The same for me. Thank you so much for inviting me and for having this wonderful conversation with you. And expect me to bug you in the future to come back on. With pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Uh, you notice the looting reporting the other night? This is hell. Excuse me. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history on June 5th, 1946, 74 years ago this Friday. Fire broke out in the Silver Grill Cocktail Lounge at the luxurious LaSalle Hotel on the corner of LaSalle and Madison Streets in downtown Chicago. Although in retrospect, the Silver Grill Cocktail Lounge doesn't sound as luxurious as it does the slimy, leering old white guy scene. More than a thousand hotel guests got out of the building safely, including 150 who were rescued by Chicago firefighters and by ordinary citizens, imperialists, who arrived on the scene to help. But 61 people were killed, including several children and a battalion chief of the Chicago Fire Department. Which makes you wonder why there were children in the luxurious Silver Grill Cocktail Lounge. And if there were children again, how luxurious could the Silver Grill Cocktail Lounge actually be? After remodeling and repairs, the hotel would reopen a year later, only to be demolished in 1976 to make way for a new office building. The luxurious nature of the office building that replaced the Silver Grill Cocktail Lounge is, as of this date, undetermined. In Rotten History, June 5th, 1981, 39 years ago, also this Friday, a weekly medical journal published by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in other words, the deep state, carried the first clinical report about a previously unknown illness causing immune deficiency among gay men and intravenous drug users in the United States, which I am certain was likely a hoax. 
The illness would later be labeled Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, or AIDS, oh, and attributed to a virus which had jumped the species barrier decades earlier. The HIV virus has been retrospectively identified in cases dating as far back as 1959. It's now a pandemic affecting some 40 million people worldwide, and despite many advances in treatment, researchers have yet to develop a truly effective vaccine, and that does not bode well for us during the coronavirus, when so many of our hopes for reopening and getting back to the hell that was normal are depending upon a vaccine. And finally, in Rotten History, June 6th, 1822, 198 years ago this Saturday, a 28-year-old Canadian fur trapper named Alexis Saint-Martin, who worked as an indentured servant at Fort Mackinac in northern Michigan, was accidentally shot by a duck hunter with a musket. No word on how much Alexis resembled said duck. Against all odds, Alexis survived the mistaken duck shooting, but his wound healed in such a way that it left an open hole in his torso's side, leading directly into his stomach, which is disgusting and the pain I've been through the past few weeks. I thought there was a hole in my side going directly to my stomach and somebody was constantly punching it. Though Lexus kept the hole covered with a bandage because he was a gentleman, food fell out of it when he tried to eat because the hole was disgusting. So at first he had to nurse himself by taking enemas, which are not all that good tasting. Meanwhile, the fort's army surgeon, Dr. William Belmont, was eager to study the process of human digestion, which was still largely a mystery by medical science. So he persuaded Alexis Saint-Martin, who was illiterate, to sign an agreement allowing scientific experiments in which Belmont would have him eat various foods and would then uncover the hole in his side to observe how the items were affected by stomach juices. So if you're wondering what people did for entertainment before the internet, now you know. The signed contract also requires San Martin to work for pay as Belmont's household servant. And it's stipulated that Belmont would eventually sew up the hole in San Martin's stomach and allow him to live a normal life. But the experiments, which were often painful for Alexis San Martin, went on for years and allowed Belmont to make significant scientific discoveries. Meanwhile, San Martin got married, had six kids, what, and kept demanding more money for his service as a medical guinea pig. He finally asked for more money than Dr. Martin was willing to pay, and at that point, the two men went their separate ways. San Martin spent the rest of his life avoiding the many other doctors who wanted to study him, and he never did get his stomach sewed up. After he died in Quebec at the age of 78, his relatives fe feared that the doctors might dig up his body to do an autopsy. They were afraid the doctors were going to rob his grave. So they waited until... Saint-Martin was thoroughly decomposed before burying him in an unmarked grave. And that's really, really, really rotten history. And this is hell. Alex, please tell everybody the rest of this week's guests. Uh, so tomorrow, Henry Giroux is going to be on to talk about his Truth Out op-ed. The COVID-19 pandemic is exposing the plague of neoliberalism. Sweet. And he's got some other writing, too, that's been really fantastic over the last few weeks. And you should always follow Henry on Facebook. Uh, then on Wednesday at 10 a.m., we're going to be talking with Sarah Beth Kaufman about her book, American Roulette, The Social Logic of Death Penalty Sen Sentencing Trials. <laughs> I have a feeling it's not a good idea. It's not a good thing because roulette is in the title. 
And then uh, finally, on Thursday, William C. Anderson will be back uh, to talk about his Truth Out op-ed, Forget Looting, Capitalism is the Real Robbery. And Jeffy. Truth Out with William C. Anderson on Wednesday. All right. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. I want to thank our guests today, Ariella Aisha Azale, author of Potential History, Unlearning Imperialism. Follow Ariella on Twitter at Aisha Ariella. We have a direct link to her website, cargocollective.com slash Ariella Azale at our website, thisishell.com. Thanks to Alex for producing today's show. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for today's Rotten History. Thanks for all the work on the archives to Richard Nor- Richard Norwood. And also special thanks on building these here studios to Theron Humiston, who has a new record out, by the way. So people should be going and trying to find Theron Humiston. I'll share that on Facebook and Twitter. It's really fantastic. It's been getting, I've I've seen a whole bunch of people talking about how much they enjoy it online. Uh, So yeah, so find that all stuff there. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, Visit thisishell.com.